If you will, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. We are continuing our series, a little short series, called A Peculiar People. Uh, Next week will be the final sermon. Pastor Jeremy will be leading in that as we look to a peculiar hope. But this week we're going to be looking at what we call a peculiar impartiality. Acts chapter 10 And then after next week, we're back in Luke's gospel. We've been making our way through Luke for some time. We'll go back to Luke in two Sundays from now. So uh, Acts chapter 10 this morning. I'm going to read the text this morning a little differently as far as we're going to read it as we go because it's a long passage and we want to just kind of keep up with it as we're walking through the text together. So let me pray and ask for the Lord's guidance now. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would fill our minds with truth and that you'd help us by your spirit hear it Receive it and be transformed by it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In his autobiography, Mahatma Gandhi shared about a time when he was studying in England. He was actually reading through the Gospels and was deeply touched and seriously considered becoming a convert to Christianity. After all, it seemed the things he was reading seemed to offer a real solution to the caste system that divided the people of India. So one Sunday, he attended church services and decided to ask the minister for enlightenment on salvation and other doctrines. But when Gandhi entered the sanctuary, the ushers refused to give him a seat and suggested he go elsewhere and worship with his own people. And so he left and he never came back. And then he said this, if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. See, India's caste system is built upon a system of rank and superiority. It's a system we could say that is based on or built upon partiality. And we know that that's the case in India. It has been a long time and We can look at that as an example, but the truth of the matter is, is that we live in a world that often has a functional caste system, even though it may not be so overt, certainly one seems to exist. It's a system that values certain kinds of people over others, and it's completely backwards from the things that God values. Because we know that in the kingdom of God, there is no caste system. There is no partiality. And yet we know the sin of partiality is alive and well today. Whether we're talking about status, race, wealth, politics, religion, we live in a world that elevates some while degrading others. We know the world values, for example, the rich value certain groups over others by saying certain people or groups are deserving of honor and admiration while others are not. But is that how we as Christians ought to live our lives? As I said, in the kingdom of God, there is no caste system. There is no, should be no partiality. Here in Acts chapter 10, we're going to see how God teaches us that he shows no partiality and he welcomes all into his kingdom. 
And so here in Acts 10, we're going to see four expressions of God's impartial love for all people. And then we're going to draw out some implications from that towards the end. Acts chapter 10, four expressions of God's impartial love for all people and then implications toward applications, we could say, at the end. Let's begin with the first one, which we call God's impartiality is revealed by divine revelation. Look with me at verses 1 through 16 of chapter 10. We read this. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? He said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel spoke to him, had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. While they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is, called, that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Well, here in Acts chapter 10 at the beginning, we have two visions. One to Cornelius, a God-fearing centurion, a Gentile, and one to Peter, a peasant fisherman, now called to be a disciple, and he's Jewish. The first vision in verses 1 through 8 is to Cornelius when an angel of God appears and instructs him to send for a man named Peter. And so he does. He sends two servants and a guard, our soldier, to go and retrieve Peter and bring him back to them. Now, we're told a little bit about Cornelius here. We know that he was a centurion, a Roman soldier of sorts, a Gentile, and he was a God-fearer. We're told that he sought God and prayed to God. He gave alms generously, which is contributions to the poor. He was mindful of the poor around him, so he gave generously. He prayed regularly. He was a man who sought to love God and neighbor, neighbor even though he didn't quite have all the connections related to God's plan of redemption before him. But yet he was a God-fearer. The second vision, verses 9 through 13, comes to Peter when he's in Joppa. Peter is there staying with Simon, a tanner, and so we see that he's there and he he's, goes to the rooftop to, to spend time in prayer. And just about that time as he's praying, a delegation, that delegation from Cornelius comes, arrives at the city gates, and about that same time, Peter falls into this trance and sees this vision, this great sheet descending from heaven, let down by the four corners, we're told, and in it were all kinds of animals, reptiles, and birds of the air. And then the voice, rise, Peter, kill and eat. For Peter, this command was alarming. 
And you see it in his response, don't you? This was shocking. It wasn't one of those moments where God speaks and the servants or whoever's being spoken to is like, okay. Peter objects. He protests. By no means, Lord. For I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. To which God responded, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. Happened three times to emphasize that this is to be received, heard, and obeyed. Three times. So what was God telling him? What was God saying to Peter? God is communicating a very important, there's so much going on here in this text, and and God is communicating to Peter that something significant is taking place. In fact, one of the things that he's, he's communicating here is that this new covenant era has arrived. And by declaring all foods clean, he is doing two things. One, he is removing the old, the old covenant restrictions to food laws, making all foods clean, but he's doing much more than that. He's removing a significant barrier that had kept Jews separated from Gentiles for a long time. Now, Jesus had previously taught his disciples this very thing, including Peter. He had previously taught them that food was not what ultimately defiled a person. If you go back to Mark, I think Mark chapter 7, Jesus had taught them very clearly that food wasn't what defiled a person, but that which was in the hearts. So this vision is not the first time the disciples and Peter would have understood or at least heard from Jesus about the food laws. So we know that because of that and because of what's being and how this will ultimately be applied, that, that God is teaching Peter something much greater than merely what you should eat. There's much wider application in view. What God is doing here, God is wrecking Peter's world view, his Jewish-centric worldview that not only had him eating certain foods, but kept him socially distant, we could say, from certain groups of people. The Lord was revealing the scope and plan of his redemption. So you see that here that God's impartiality is first of all revealed through divine revelation, revealed through these two visions. And then you see the next part that God's, number two, God's impartiality is revealed by this Gentile inclusion. See it in verse 17 through 29. Let's pick up in verse 17. Now, so this is after the vision that Peter just had. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What's the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So what did Peter do? Verse 23, he invited them in to be his guest. That's a miracle right there. Just we'll come back to that. The next day he rose and went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Had to be food there. Had to be a barbecue, I'm sure. 
Verse 25, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why have you sent for me? Peter gets this vision from God and his Jewish consciousness was troubled. His Jewish consciousness was telling him this was all wrong. He had grown up to believe that certain foods as well as certain types of people, namely all non-Jews, were unclean. And his initial objection makes that clear. But after God makes clear what he had said, we see as Peter internally processes and as the Spirit of God speaks directly to him and brings these men to his home, Peter begins to understand what this vision was alluding to. The Holy Spirit directs Peter to receive them and accompany them without hesitation. So in an, in an unusual act for a Jew, Peter welcomes them in and he goes with them the next day. So it doesn't take long after this encounter for Peter to finally get what God is saying to him. His eyes are being opened to what God is teaching him and his transformation is a beautiful thing to behold here in this text. Side note, where is Peter when Cornelius sends for him? He's in Joppa. Think of where else Joppa in the Bible, if you know your Bibles very well, think of where else Joppa is mentioned. It's mentioned in the book of Jonah. It was in Joppa that Jonah attempted to flee God's call to preach to the Ninevites, but God interrupts him in Joppa. And here, all these years later, all these years later, it's in Joppa that God now interrupts Peter's life and clarifies for him and confirms to him that God's redemptive plan was not merely for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. So Peter makes his way to Cornelius, and Peter makes clear the lesson he learns. You see that in verse 28, 29. Peter's there at Cornelius' house, talked with them, went in, found many persons gathered. Verse 28, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for me to be here, for a Jew to be with you. You know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Without objection. Friends, what we see here is had Peter not been confronted head on, with his ethnocentric tendencies, with the, the fact that he was living in a Jewish mindset, a Jewish worldview, a Jewish frame of mind, that God is now blowing that out of the water and showing him that God is not just God of the Jews, he is God of all. Peter's being confronted head on with this and the fact that the new covenant was now being placed front and central and the fact that in the new covenant, God is making clear that his plan, he's made that clear in the old covenant, they just didn't get it, but in the new covenant, it's crystal clear that God's plan was for both Jews and Gentiles. Had Peter never been confronted with this, he would have likely never been part of this great gospel movement. For a Jewish man to say, God has shown me that I should not call any person 
common or unclean, was nothing less than a divine miracle of, work, of grace in, this, in, in Peter's heart. Nothing less than a miracle. God's impartiality is revealed by this Gentile inclusion. Number three, God's impartiality is revealed by gospel proclamation. Peter shows up at Cornelius' house. And Cornelius is like, hey, God's made it clear to me in a vision that we were to send for you, and so we did. Now tell us what we're supposed to hear. Don't you wish it was always this easy, just, just clear? Uh, so Peter's there, and he's like, what? Cornelius is like, tell us what we're supposed to hear. Verse 30, and Cornelius said, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once. You've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. Verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, now, that's not always a good thing for Peter. If you follow Peter very much, sometimes when he opens his mouth, it's not a good thing, but he nails it here. Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. For the word that is sent to, he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him appear, made made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. God's impartiality is revealed by gospel proclamation. Listen, the same good news that was preached to the Jews is now the same good news being preached to the Gentiles. Peter acknowledges this. He acknowledges right out of the bat. So Cornelius says, why have you come? And, and notice where Peter begins. He says, I am here because God has made it clear to me that he shows no partiality. That's why I'm here. I came because God has called me to you. And then he preaches the gospel to him. Shares the good news of what Christ has done. God's vision has now led to action. He revealed what he desired and now it's coming to pass. And this was the fact that the gospel is good news for all people. And Peter delivers this. Notice he goes from objecting to receiving and being corrected, and now he's going in obedience to share this good news with Cornelius. And that's what he does. He delivers a concise summary of the things that he had preached elsewhere at Pentecost, remember in Acts 2, and elsewhere throughout the, uh, the book of Acts. He's preaching the same thing here. Notice a few things just very quickly. The content of what Peter preached included the life, the death, the resurrection, and the return of Jesus, and the offer to all of forgiveness for those who would receive him by faith. 
The extent of that goes to everyone, that everyone who believes in him. So you see that this is the gospel message being communicated. Because God is impartial, he is now commanding and urging Peter go. And likewise, we see that in the Great Commission and other places that we're to go to all nations, to all peoples. The same good news is good news for all. And friend, that is the same, that, that's true today. That is true today, no matter who you are, no matter where you've come from, no matter what you look like, the good news of Jesus Christ is good news for you. It is good news for you because God who is holy has sent his one and only son into this world to live a life of perfect righteousness and yet die upon the cross a sinner's death, deserving, we sinners, deserving of God's wrath and judgment against our sin. Jesus dies upon the cross as a substitute for sinners so that all who would turn from their sin and look to him by faith would be saved. It's the same message. There's not a, there's not a different gospel for the Old Testament for the Jewish people and now something different for the Gentiles. It's the same message for all peoples. It's it, God's impartiality is revealed through gospel proclamation because it's the same message for all. And then number four, God's impartiality is revealed by divine confirmation. See that? Verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. What you see there is that the Holy Spirit now comes upon the Gentile people as they hear and receive the good news of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit comes upon them just like at Pentecost. Just like at Pentecost, which is predominantly Jewish listeners at that point in time. The Holy Spirit comes there, the Holy Spirit comes here, and God is confirming, he is confirming that he is God over all and his salvation is good for all. This would have been huge to see this happen. I'm sure Peter was just blown away. I'm sure Peter, to see the Holy Spirit come upon the Gentile people just like the Holy Spirit came upon the Jews, was amazed amazed that God's impartiality is being revealed in this way. So we see very clearly from this passage, from this chapter, that God is a God who shows no partiality and that he has determined to, through the gospel, be the savior of sinners from every walk of life, every culture, every community. Several implications that we draw out of this. First of all, because God is impartial because God shows no partiality we must as his people embrace an impartial mission we must embrace an impartial mission the story of Cornelius says that all people are welcome into the kingdom and that they must come through believing the gospel now listen if there was ever a candidate who God could have saved by his good intention or the fact that he was devout in his religious practices it would have been Cornelius but he still needed to hear the gospel. He still needed to hear the good news of Jesus Christ and what Christ had accomplished in order to be reconciled to God, 
Thus the need for Peter to go to him and share this good news. If anyone was ever a candidate to be saved on their good intentions, it was he. On the flip side, if anyone had the right to wave the God and country flag, it would have been the Jewish people. But God shattered any such notion as he shows Peter here and us his resolve to be God over the nations. It means, right here we see it in this text, it means that as the people of God that we must be a globally minded people. As Christians, we must first and foremost view the world in this way. We must see the world as, first of all, as Christians. And, oh, brothers and sisters, the sin of partiality can often, often hinder us from doing that. The sin of partiality can often cause us to be distracted from obeying the Great Commission. Attitudes towards people of other nations and other religions. As we, we often show these sinful attitudes through maybe just coarse joking or outright hatred. I think one example we could say is our attitudes towards those of the Muslim faith. Some wrongly assume that all Muslims are terrorists and that we must have nothing to do with them. The reality, friends, is that most of them are not terrorists. But it is true that every single one of them are lost and in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our attitudes, our conversations around people of other ethnic groups or nationalities can often be revealed just in our day-to-day conversations. Or think about the attitudes that we often present in topics such as, such as immigration. That's a complex issue. And regardless of your political point of view on immigration, as Christians, we need to be a people who care about immigrants as image bearers and as those who God desires to save. We should be most concerned about their eternal citizenship as Christians. We need to be a people who love the nations and are longing for the nations. And listen, not just the ones we like. Not just the nations that are easy to love. Not just the allies of the United States, but even our enemies. Even those that are hard to love. We need to be a people because God shows no partiality. We need to be a people who are impartial in our mission, understanding that the good news of Jesus Christ is going forth into the world and that he's called us to make disciples of all nations. All tongues, tribes, and peoples will be gathered as the people of God before the throne of God forever one day. And we are called to engage in that mission to take the gospel. And so, friends, we must ask, and you have to fight against this living where we do. Be thankful for our freedom, be thankful for this nation, but we must, as Christians, think as Christians foremost about the world. We need to be yearning for the gospel to flourish in all lands, praying regularly, going strategically, doing what we can to see the gospel go forth. There's Corneliuses out there. They're, They're out there in every people group. And we must embrace that impartial mission. Some of you need to think about going. You hear me say this from time to time. I'm praying for your kids and grandkids. If you're not going to go, I'm going to pray for your children and grandchildren that God would raise them up and send them. Mine too. 
Maybe some of us need to consider, maybe, maybe I should go do what I do, but in another place strategically for the sake of the gospel. We must embrace this impartial mission. Number two, we must foster an impartial church. The world is fixated on tribalism. People are often defined by the groups they occupy, whether that's gender, race, class, religion, sexual orientation, or something else. You just keep going down the list. And listen, tribalism, which we all, politics is another one, tribalism breeds partiality. Tribalism breeds partiality. It just cultivates it. But listen, an impartial God assumes an impartial church. In James chapter 2, we read that such an attitude must not be present in the church. And the example here we have is among the rich and the poor. James 2 verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That should be enough. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here at a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are, you, are not the rich ones those who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So there in the book of James, God is making it very clear that we should not make distinctions among those who would be gathered among the people of God. In this case, we see it's related to those of varying socioeconomic backgrounds, the rich and the poor. We shouldn't treat those who have more means as better because we think they might give more to putting down roots. Amen? Of course not. God shows no such distinctions. God makes no partiality in those situations, nor should we. We live in a world, though, that values the rich and demeans the poor. The world will tell us that certain groups of people are deserving of honor while others aren't. But again, what the world values, friends, is often backwards to what God values. The poor, we're told, here is to be honored because they're rich in the faith, thus heirs of the kingdom of God. And if we're to fulfill the royal law, we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. Those who show partiality are guilty of breaking God's law, period. We should speak and act as those who are under the law of liberty, those who are characterized by mercy. Or we could go to Acts chapter 6. We don't have time to look at that whole chapter, but in Acts chapter 6, we see Greek-speaking widows were being, or the Hebrew, uh, one of those widows, I can't remember now, are being neglected by the daily distribution. And it, there's a division between the Hebrews and the, the Gentiles there, the Greeks, the Greek-speaking Jews. And so this is more of a racial or religious partiality that's being demonstrated. And the church had to address it. 
So you see in two examples there in James 2 and Acts 6 how there are distinctions often being made among not just outside in culture, in the church, among God's people, and this should not be so. Point is clear, partiality can and does exist in the church. Just consider the issue of race alone. To even bring it up is risky because it's such a charged and explosive conversation. But listen, friends, as Christians, we can't simply sit silent and pretend it will go away. When I speak of racism, I'm referring to what John Piper defines as an explicit or implicit belief or practice that distinguishes or values one race over other races. Just recently, our elders got together and put together what we call a shepherd statement on our thoughts, biblical response to race and racism. You can see that on the website under our documents section. But friends, the history of the Southern Baptist Convention alone shows just how much of an issue this has been in our own denomination. Listen, the Southern Baptist Convention, if you didn't know, if you didn't know this, you know it now, was established out of partiality. The reason the Southern Baptist Convention exists today was because there were, they were wanting to send missionaries from the South who owned slaves. And those Baptist churches in the South said, that's okay. The Baptists in the North said, that's not okay. And thus the forming of the Southern Baptist Convention in 1845 out of this whole issue of slavery. It's a sad indictment on our history. So in 1995, it took until 1995 to put forth a resolution condemning this. And I'm going to read the whole thing, but just some snippets of that resolution where Southern Baptists can come together and they acknowledge this this horrible reality that it says, whereas many of our Southern Baptists defended the right to own slaves and either participated in, supported, or acquiesced in the particularly inhumane nature of American slavery, and whereas in later years, Southern Baptists failed in many cases to support, and in some cases opposed, legitimate initiatives to secure the civil rights of African Americans. It goes on to say, we apologize to all African Americans for condoning or perpetuating individual and systemic racism in our lifetime, and we genuinely repent of racism of which we have been guilty whether consciously or unconsciously, and we ask forgiveness from our African-American brothers and sisters, acknowledging that our own healing is at stake. And praise God, there has been great movement, great strides moving away from that horrible beginning. But even though the sinful practice of chattel slavery has been eradicated and Jim Crow is in the past, there are still racial tensions and inequities that we must honestly confront. And again, I'm not... That's obvious in the culture, but I'm saying this is in the church, and generally speaking. Historically, we've seen this in the church from people opposing interracial marriage to teaching of white supremacy in our seminaries to those those saying we shouldn't even be involved in civil rights movement because it's not a, quote, gospel issue. Again, a lot has changed for the good, but we have a lot of work to do. Today, it's still there. Just in the past few weeks, a Southern Baptist pastor was in the news called out for praying at event honoring the founder of the KKK, the very same week that John Lewis was being laid to rest in Alabama. Church has often been complicit in fostering racial attitudes. I've, listen, I have two friends, pastor friends. Both have been forced to resign from their churches because their crime, inviting black people to church. Friends of mine run off from their churches because of this. You say it doesn't exist anymore. Friends, I've... <laughs> I'm here to tell you it does. The residue of our past remains. 
And it couldn't be more obvious in the fact that most churches remain largely segregated even today. Now, friends, there's a lot that could be said about this, a lot about the racial situation here in the United States. And listen, let me just say this. I have zero expectation for the race problem in America to be resolved by government policy, presidential elections, or by violence. But I do believe it can be most fully and faithfully addressed when gospel-believing white, black, and brown people get together in local churches and seek to listen, learn, and love each other through all the tension that exists. And we can do that because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, if anything, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ ought to be ashamed that attempts to address the racial divide in America are being led by secular movements driven by wildly different worldviews than what we have in the scriptures. We ought to be ashamed that others are taking the lead and going in different directions than the Bible would even command. The church should be ground zero for addressing the sin of partiality, the sin of racism, as well as the place where true reconciliation and peace can be lived out in view for all to see. The church ought to be a community of countercultural people where love of neighbor is on radical display for all to see. Because, why? God is not a God of partiality and God is a God who wants all people in his kingdom. We must foster an impartial church. Number three, we must live impartial lives. There's a real temptation. There's a temptation for me to say, I, I really don't think I'm imp that I'm partial. I, I think I'm doing okay. There, there's that temptation for us to hear this and say, Pastor, we get it. We're not partial. Yet, there is often an underlying, subtle attitude that persists in our sinful hearts. Especially towards people who aren't like us. Listen, Peter is case in point. You think, what a, what a radical transformation Peter went in Acts, or in Acts chapter 10. Praise God. Amen. Praise God. But let's turn to Galatians chapter 2. Let's check on Peter and see how Peter's doing with this. He was changed, but he still struggled. His Jewish culture was still reinforcing aspects of partiality that he struggled with. And listen, we must not be afraid to be critical of our own cultures. Because they are not neutral. They inform and, 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 and lead you to make assumptions and decisions more than we know. In Galatians chapter 2, Peter shows he's still got baggage when it comes to his view of Gentiles. Paul had received a call to go preach to the Gentiles. And he runs into Peter in Antioch and had to confront Peter. Look at, look at verse 11, Galatians 2 verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, this is Paul speaking, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Why? Verse 12, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself. Why? Fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas, poor Barnabas, was led astray by their hypocrisy. 
And when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas and before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Notice Paul's assessment. Notice Paul comes to the scene there and he confronts Peter. How would you like to have been in that conversation? He confronts Peter head on and says, when I notice his conduct was not in step with what? The truth of the gospel. His partiality was in fact a gospel issue, friends. It was not in step with the gospel. It was not reflecting God's redemptive purposes. He's eating with Gentiles and his Jewish friends come and he's like, whoa, I don't want to be seen with these people. Peter struggled. He had that residue of partiality in his heart that he was still wrestling with. And for us to think that, that we would not have the same would be naive. Friends, even Christians are not immune to partiality. Viewing and treating others differently because they're different than us is often, the, it may not be outward acts of regression, okay? But it can be those inward attitudes. That joke at the workplace that goes around that you just laugh along with. Many, many other ways. You see, the temptation to put ourselves over others is real. Whatever category of partiality you want to use, strength, beauty, riches, ethnicity, gender, religion, on and on we could go. The, the temptation to see ourselves in a better light over others is a real daily battle. And one of the things that Acts chapter 10 reminds us is that God is not partial. Indeed, he works hard to expose Peter's own partiality and shows that his kingdom must be one, to open, one open to all kinds of people. Friends, we must own up to any partiality that's residing in our own hearts and repent. The, the partiality is sin. It may be more subtle, but it is often present in more ways than we realize. The question we need to ask ourselves, I'm asking you to ask yourself this question. I want you to evaluate anybody else but you. See, the, the question we all need to ask of ourselves is not, am I partial? But, God, how could I be demonstrating partiality in my heart and in my life? How many gospel opportunities, God-ordained opportunities, do we miss because of preconceived judgments we've made about someone else? Friends, this could be applied in so many contexts. We, we wouldn't have time to hit them all. How we treat people of different race, races. How we interact with those of different economic and social backgrounds. How we engage people from the LGBTQ community. How we view our Muslim or Hindu neighbor. How we treat those who may have certain disabilities. And on and on and on we go. What is our attitude and what is our actions towards such people? We need to understand that there is, in fact, implicit bias in all our hearts, and it can hinder us from being a people who reflect the character of God and the advance of the gospel. Listen, we may not be Hindu, but all of us have functioning caste systems in our hearts. It's there. 
It may not be as strong as it used to be, but it's there. And we're told here that God is not a God of partiality. He doesn't make distinctions when it comes to who the gospel is for. And friends, while certain aspects of our our identity are part of who we are, class, race, male, female, it's important to see that the gospel places us all within the same common narrative. While we may be Jew or Gentile, or if you want to use the terms we know today, European-American, African-American, Asian-American, male, female, rich, poor, Democrat, Republican, all, all on them we could go, all of us share a common story. We all descend from the race of Adam, and the gospel indicts us all with a common fall into sin. All of us are guilty, equally so. And yet we are all given a common hope of redemption in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because of this common salvation, we have a common glorification, one that has space for beautiful diversity, amen to that, but one that results in the same end, that we will be glorified. And the good news that is preached to this world is good news for all people, no matter who you are, because God is not partial. Friends, the sad reality is that we live in a sinful world. And in some ways, we all sinfully prefer some people over others. But listen, the sin of partiality, the sin of partiality is an affront against God. And it's an affront against his purpose to redeem sinners from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. So, yes, we must care about issues of partiality. We must look for it first in our own hearts and then in, the wor- and in our churches and then in the world around us. The gospel is good news for all people. So let's be a people who preach that and let's be a people who reflect that faithfully. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the word that shows us who you are. And as we reflect upon who you are this morning, we think about what you've called us to be and who you've, called, who you've called us to be and what you've called us to do. God, thank you for this beautiful picture that we see in Acts chapter 10 of this, this new covenant reality that the gospel is for both Jew and Greek. The gospel is for all peoples, wealthy centurions or peasant fishermen. Father, we're thankful that you show us that so clearly in your word and you make clear that you are not a God of partiality. So, Father, would you help us to be like you? Would you help us, Lord, to be a people who love the nations, who love people who aren't like us? Help us to be a people that don't make distinctions in our interactions and in the way that we seek to love neighbor. Father, would you help us to be a people who reflect your heart's And that we would be faithful to the gospel to the end of our days and that you would continue to build your church and that your church here on earth would reflect more and more the reality of your kingdom each and every day. Forgive us where we have failed in this, Father. Forgive us individually where we are partial. Forgive us as a church for when we have been partial. Forgive us for the church universal when we have been partial. Father, help us. 
to love you and to love our neighbor. To your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.